Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Northern Tool and Equipment isn't just a store, it's a problem solver's paradise. Fully stocked with the right professional grade tools and fully staffed with experts who have the right answers. Problem solved. Northern Tool and Equipment Summer Sale is on now. Stop in and save up to 50% on pressure washers, sprayers, generators, fans, lawn and garden equipment, and more. Hundreds of deals in store or at northerntool.com. Welcome back into a bonus edition of the Kickabout here on the Blue Room. I am your host, Rob Vera, joined today by my special guest, Phil McNulty, the chief football writer from the BBC. Phil, it is very early in the morning for me, but I am happy to be up this early, very rarely, but I am definitely happy to be up if I get a chance to talk to you a little bit about the season ahead. How are you doing today? All good, thank you. Getting ready to go to Brentford versus Arsenal this evening and then Manchester City at Spurs on Sunday. So busy start straight in. Very nice. Very nice. Well, it's I wanted to actually kind of start off with that. I knew you told me when we were setting up the meeting that you were headed to Brentford for the uh, Brentford Arsenal uh, match today. And I, I just wanted to get your perspective. It almost feels like a, a bit of a cliche question at this point, but I, I think the further I get away from last season, even as someone who was watching it all on television over here, um, it, it, it's just this oddly empty sort of feeling when you when you think back to all the the, the matches with the empty stadiums and, and everything else. I mean, how much are you kind of looking forward to covering a normal season? I don't even know what normal means anymore, uh, but and maybe normal has kind of gone out the window with, you know, all of the COVID variants sort of hanging over things. But 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 just in general, to be back into stadiums full of fans and, and to cover this in a slightly more con- cover the sport in a slightly more conventional way. How are you feeling about it going into tonight? Really looking forward to having games with fans again. I think um, you're right when you say there was an empty feeling about games without fans. It hit you on on certain occasions, really, certain games when you go to the FA Cup final. Um, not so much this season because there were fans there, but the season before. And there's nobody there. You know, they try to do all the ceremonial, the abide with me and various things. But it's just a very strange feeling. And. I think it was the when Arsenal won it, I turned up my usual time to go. And normally, if you go to an FA Cup final, there are thousands of fans thronging Wembley. As the Arsenal coach pulled up, there was one guy there with one Arsenal flag. It was all a bit sad. And, and then you think of games like last season, you know, the Manchester derby, the Merseyside derby, the North London derby. Yeah. These are games that you know, normally you'd have 50,000, 60,000 fans there. And just to see them play out, the sound of players shouting at or to each other, is very strange. So to have all the fans back is going to be great. We've got a taste of it at the Euros, but you know the league games with their own partisan fans there is going to be fantastic. And obviously Brentford, new to the Premier League, um, mm. it'll be a really big night tonight. 
Well, and I've, I've been thinking about kind of the this return to normal uh, quite a bit lately just because of the potential implications on the sport in this sort of post-COVID world, this post-COVID, um, I don't know, finan- financial climate, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think a lot of us speculated at the time that that when fans returned, obviously that would be a boon to the clubs who, who certainly missed uh, missed that influx of revenue uh, for, for an entire year. But I think we all kind of expected for uh, most clubs not to be spending quite as freely as maybe they had in the past, which, of course, uh, we'll get on to Everton here in a mm-hmm. moment. But um, I, I think kind of somewhat unsurprisingly, I think we're seeing some of the the, the richest clubs in the world still spending at, at what I, I don't even know that I would – classify it now as as something alarming i think it's just the the trend that you're now seeing the dollar the you know what we'd refer to as the the dollar figures themselves just getting bigger uh, over time but you know you've got city who've, who've who've got got Grealish, obviously messi moving to psg um you know, lukaku going back to chelsea i i i wonder just from from your point of view as someone who has obviously grown up with this game grown up uh you know spending time watching not only this league but but now spending a career covering uh, the Premier League in particular, it, it feels like for someone like me, who as an American came into this sport, I, I really started following it back in 2004. So it's it's been a little while now, but I, I think that I always sort of understood that certain clubs had financial advantages, but that there was still some form of upward mobility. Do, do you feel like the increased, you know, kind of spending gap between the sort of haves and have nots is sustainable? Do you feel like this a super league is, is sort of inevitable at this point? How, how does how does this continue to persist without any sort of, I guess, meaningful change? Well, I think the Super League has probably come and gone after what happened last season. Uh, but I think you will have a league within a league in the Premier League, if that makes sense. I think the top four yeah. are pretty probably cut and dried for this season already. You look at Manchester City, Liverpool, Manchester United, Chelsea, and I think that's probably your top four. So you have that league within a league. Um, all the clubs seem to be able to spend, particularly Manchester City, of Guardiola who's making various financial points about how they can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Chelsea, obviously. And then you come on to Everton, who because of profit and sustainability and financial areas, which people know a lot more about than me, <laughs> seem to struggle to be able to get a 15 million pound deal for a right back over the line. Um, yeah. So that in itself will will contribute to the gap closing, uh, increasing, should I say, but equally smart management um, at a club like Leicester City, say, you know, Leicester City's recruitment has been superb. Right. Um, they've got a very good manager. Um, they won the league in that incredible season, which did show us that it can be done. Although I wouldn't put much money on when it might happen again. Um, so yeah, the league will be within a league, but smart management still matters. Um, and you know, I still think the top four's decided, and I suspect the spending trend will continue. Although Liverpool haven't haven't particularly indulged in that yet. They bought one player, but they've sold others, so they're working within a certain parameter. It looks like. Yeah. Um, but no, it's um, it does look like the rich are wielding their power again, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think sometimes I I'm, I openly kind of muse about the idea that it the wealth gap seems to be increasing. I, I just I wonder sometimes uh, I wonder how that is is meant to let to leave other clubs fans and supporters to feel in general, but. You know, I think you make a really good point about about smart management. I, I think we've all I think as Everton fans, uh, my my colleagues and I have joked a lot about how Lester have sort of stolen the uh, story that we wanted for ourselves mm-hmm. over the last half decade or so. But uh, I think that that's actually a good one segue on to Everton. It's uh, Everton itself. I mean, look, the. The headlines and, and really I can't imagine how many thousands and thousands of words have been spilt over the last several seasons about the the huge amounts of money that Everton have spent the transfer for market. Um, I, I don't want to revisit all that. Like like you kind of alluded to, uh, Phil, I'm not I'm not a financial expert either, but I think we can all <clears throat> excuse me, acknowledge that right now Everton are in a position where they spent a lot of money in the past and for a variety of complex reasons and rules, they can't spend money right now. Um, it's not that supporters necessarily want it to become the norm, but 
is there any way that the lack of expectations that seem to be coming part and parcel with the lack of spending at this point? And I grant you, we have a few weeks left until the end of the into the transfer window. But is is there any way that that kind of lack of expectations somehow enables Everton to kind of regain their gritty identity again? You know, I I, I hate to. there's nothing I hate more than good old days syndrome, but I I guess I sort of am alluding to sort of the, the Moyes years of not necessarily having a lot to spend, but, but shrewdly buying, creating a a really gritty team, you know, work ethic and, and and kind of edgy aesthetic to, to the, to the players as a whole Uh, is, is there, I I don't know if I'm, I'm kind of grasping at straws here, but I don't think a lack of investment is ever a good thing, but is is maybe this time around a lack of expectations something that this particular group, and, and more importantly, a squad that Rafa Benitez is is taking over uh, with his very direct and pragmatic and and sort of as I know you've said before, ruthless style. Is this an ideal match, and is and is the lack of expectations something that can actually spur them on a little bit? Well, I think you, you mentioned you started following the game in 2004. And if you go back to 2004, when you talk about low expectations at Everton, <laughs> I'm not sure in recent memory expectations were any lower than the start of that season because Wayne Rooney had left for Manchester United in the summer. He was the great hope, obviously, two seasons. He was in and around the first team. He'd gone to Manchester United. I think Marcus Bent was brought in. Uh, as a £400,000 striking alternative to him. And the expectations were were incredibly low. But Moyes, uh, in what in many ways must be his finest hour of management, Mm -hmm. uh, put together a team that was incredibly resilient, very well organised, very difficult to beat. And they finished in the top four. And I remember at the time um, when Everton reached the top four, they, I think one of the last games of the season was they played Arsenal away. Mm. And it was maybe 24 hours after they qualified for the Champions League. And I suspect maybe drink had been taken on the Sunday when they qualified <laughs> and they lost 7 0 at Arsenal. Oh, but yeah, before, I remember that. <laughs> but, be, but before that game, um, Arsene Wenger was asked about what David Moyes had done. And he said, in the context of management, he performed a miracle uh, in, in taking a team that had sold its best player, its most talented player, and then somehow, you know, not, didn't just have a good start. It's okay having a good start and the odd good right. spell, but to then finish four uh, was incredible. And um, while I'm not suggesting Everton will finish in the top four this time, uh, sometimes a lack of expectation isn't so bad because then you can go about your business maybe quietly um, with more organisation and maybe grittier, as you say, uh, the only problem I have is that I have seen these players now for several seasons. Mm-hmm. And grit is not something I would associate with them. Um, yeah. We had that terrible record, Everton, of um, when they were going, when they went behind, they never won. That was for 18 months or so, something ridiculous like that. Um, and they will need to show different characteristics than what they have shown if Everton are to have a good season. But I, you know, I think. I predicted they will finish 10th. Uh, quite a few Everton fans have said that I've been optimistic suggesting <laughs> that. Um, yeah. Funny enough, I think if that prediction is going to be wrong, I think it will be wrong upwards, not downwards. So I, th- I don't think they'll finish hmm. lower than 10th. I think they might finish higher than 10th. I'm not suggesting five or six, maybe, maybe seven, eight, whatever. Uh, yeah. But I think I'll be wrong upwards, if that makes sense. But certainly... Uh, it's not just a lack of expectation. It's it's a general malaise at the moment. I saw, I think, uh, I can't remember which, who'd done it, but it was a, an optimism level of the fans going into the new season. And obviously at the top, you had very optimistic fans like Manchester City fans, Chelsea fans. <laughs> and right at the bottom, rooted to the bottom of this table of optimism, veering into pessimism, <laughs> Everton. Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, they've, it's been a turbulent summer yet again. Uh, the change of manager has been, uh, let's just say, it's had a mixed reception. Um, I don't think anyone expected at the end of last season what was going to happen a couple of weeks after the end of the season when Ancelotti was going to walk away. Uh, and then, of course, the second slightly unexpected thing was uh, Rafa Benitez arriving as the manager. But one thing I will say is I think Everton will be organised under Benitez. I think they might be fitter. I think they will have a more focused game plan he always has a plan, whether you like it or not, he can always have a plan. Um, so maybe 
you know, low expectations might actually, as you say, just work in their favour and, and, and the fans might be surprised. Bill, it's been a it's been a bizarre summer. I, I think I've messaged you a couple of times about this notion that I I just wanted a nice, boring Everton summer, but I, I don't even know if that exists. They, they you know, tend to you be... never get one of those. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I don't. I, I it seems it seems like they they save the the entertainment value for the for the closed season for whatever <laughs> reason. I I don't know why, but it's interesting. All the different what like this these last few months have felt like six months and and they feel like there've been some distinct phases. I, I think it started to a degree with the shock of Carla leaving. And then as Rafa became Rafa Benitez became Benitez became, uh, you know, heavily linked and, and ultimately was, was hired. There was, there was just, as you remember, there was just this kind of flash of anger and disappointment. And I'll even admit I was, I was a little mystified by it all because I think because I feel like the the motivations for for making such a selection were 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 kind of muddy. Uh, but but I do understand the argument that you're making, and and certainly there's there's a, a vibe or a sense around things that he's very hands on. He's very much a coach. He's very much organizing them. I, I thought that a quote from Damari Gray, which I'll paraphrase, uh, I think from a couple of days ago, was something along the lines of. There's a lot of managers who will tell you what you're good at, but he tells me what I'm not good at and what I can improve upon. And I need that. And it's very, it's very no nonsense. It's not the, I, I joke that Carlo kind of showed up and his plan was to be Carlo and, and he thought that that would probably be enough, but, but Rafa seems pretty hands-on. So we, we entered kind of this final, this, this third phase uh, of the summer where there's more angst about the spending and somehow that feels like it's brought the temperature down in regards to the, the, the angst or the outrage about Rafa Benitez being appointed manager. It seems like, as you've alluded to before, nothing really rattles him. I think my question for you is, do you think that this board, and and, and I guess maybe when I say the board, I, I, maybe I'm alluding mostly to Farhad Mashiri, uh, are they going to be able to hold their stomach during this? Uh, I, I'm assuming that that there will be some some dips in form and sometimes when the Goodison crowd gets very Goodison, <laughs> as you know. Yeah. And so, um, uh, obviously, that they had a they seemingly had sound plans when they hired people like Kuman or or even Marco Silva and and Carlo Ancelotti. How do you assess Farhad Mashiri's, you know, based on what you understand or what you know, his commitment to kind of seeing this through with with Rafa Benitez for as long as possible? I, th I think he, he, I think he has to. I think having gone through the process of appointing him, um, he has to hold his nerve um, because there will be moments when the atmosphere will be uneasy. Uh, um, uh, and I just think having invested, when I say invested, I don't mean pounds, shillings and pence, and we invested in the appointment of Benitez, he, you know, ha he would have to have been living on another planet not to be aware of the fact that quite a lot of Everton fans would not welcome this appointment. And not only would they not welcome it, they would be hostile to it. Um, I think the time lapse from his appointment, and as you say, people casting their eyes towards the transfer market, has lowered the temperature a bit, but I think he will has he has to be aware of the fact that this is, without argument, the most controversial managerial appointment in the history of the club. It's as simple as that. Yeah, hundred percent. There's, there's, there's a lot riding on it for for Mashiri, um, but I genuinely think I think that there is a sort of a a method to what some fans might regard as the madness. I think he looked at the candidates that were available. Um, a few people were suggesting Antonio Conte, but there was more chance of, of me or you getting the job <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. than him. He was just never going. He's never going to take that job in a million sure. years. He, no. you know, he, he will have much bigger, better offers, and that might hurt. But it's true than than Everton would ever offer him. And he, he also is a very, very high maintenance character. He will make big demands. Um, so you had you then went into the uh, Nuno Espirito Santo. Um, saga, if you like, of it looked like it was going to be him. 
Um, and what went wrong there, I'm not quite sure, but that didn't develop into anything. And but, then of course, but Phil, by the way, I'd just like to point out what an odyssey for Nuno this summer. He's, he went from definitely going to Palace to, the, to Everton yeah. and has somehow landed at Spurs. He's what at a- Spurs, which is a very <laughs> good job for him. Yeah. <laughs> that's, but, that's an entire movie, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So, so then we ended up with, with Rafa Benitez and everything you, you hear was that when he met Mashiri, and of course there was chat that he met Usmanov as well, who is sort of, if you like, in the shadow of, of Mashiri, um, that they were incredibly impressed with him, with his vision for the club, which, what he knew already about the players who were there, what needed to be done. And he obviously convinced them to such an extent that they were prepared to ride out any discontent from the fan base. And we saw it, and I don't hold much store to the court of bedsheet opinion, if you like, you know, some guy who goes around... You know, there's, you know, people who say we know where you live and can't even leave it outside the right house, you know. <laughs> um, so, I, 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 but, you know, there, there was a quieter element of the fans, a more reasonable element of the fans who who would not have been happy with this appointment. Um, it's mm. obvious. There's no point saying saying otherwise. But Mashiri clearly felt strongly enough about what Benitez had said and done and what he's done in the past that he feels he is the man to, to sort of nail something down finally and and give him some sort of bang for the buck that he's invested, which is an awful lot. Mm. Um, what I do think is I think he needs a good start. I find it quite irritating that some fans are already trying to find fault with everything he does. And, you know, if, if they turn up tomorrow and it's raining, they might blame him for it. You know, um, I think you've got to give, whether you whether you approve of his choice or not, you've just got to give a guy a, a chance, basically. You've got to see what he does. Um, interestingly enough, um, I was at Benitez's first game as Chelsea manager, which is at Manchester City, and he'd similarly rankled or rattled Chelsea's fans with some comments about them when he was at Liverpool. So the environment was a little bit similar to what he might walk into tomorrow, probably actually even more hostile. And he walked out of the tunnel at um, Stamford Bridge, turned to go to his seat, and I, I'm not kidding, 40,000 people booed him wow. all at once. <laughs> that was his first sighting, and he just strolled to his seat. He was completely and utterly unmoved. I, I, you almost admired him for the, the, the ability to be as thick-skinned about it as he was. Uh, I actually don't think it'll be as bad as that at Everton. I think people will be giving him a chance. But at Chelsea, there was serious hostility in the area. It wasn't a few guys who didn't, didn't agree with him. This was virtually the whole stadium. But he held his nerve. He... he finished third in the he won the Europa League. So you're dealing with somebody who's almost unusually able to block out noise that he feels is unnecessary. Um, so that will be interesting to see how he copes with that. I don't think it'll be as bad as it was at, um, at Chelsea. And I think, ultimately, again, there's the, the sort of baggage that he brings with him, which is a whole trolley load of it, as far as many fans are concerned. The the Liverpool connection, the comments about a small club, um, 2007, was it? Something like that. Um, so there's a lot of baggage there. Um, and that is why I think it would be in everyone's best interest if tomorrow resulted in a nice 2-0 or 3-1 win with a couple of nice goals <laughs> and, a, and everybody going home happy. What, what you do not oh, want yeah. is Everton to be two goals down after 10 minutes. Jeez. And I'm sure every Everton fan doesn't want that to happen, but particularly tomorrow, it would not be advisable shall we say, for that to happen. But I, I do think a large proportion of the fans will give him a chance. I think there are reasonable people there and they will say, well, yeah, you know, who are the other names on the list? Who that they would who they would get? Did they did they want Eddie Howe? That was a name that turned people off. Duncan is a romantic notion, but with no real proven managerial pedigree. Benitez is someone who is experienced. You know, is he still the hungry, fired up? I'll cause a fight in an empty room if anyone dares to cross my club. And he says that was at Liverpool. Uh, we'll find out. Um, but he does need a, he, as, as a, and it applies to any new manager. He needs a good start. Yeah, I, I think that something interesting in that too is the notion that uh, I, I almost feel like, you know, there's the, there's the cliched expression about winning you know, curing all things, you know, you know, forgiving all, all, all uh, sins, whatever you want to call it. I mean, there's a million ways that it's, that it's ultimately said, but 
I, I do think that there, I kind of agree with you. I think that there certainly is a very reasonable, uh, as emotional and as uh, gallows humor as, as we seem to get as a fan base and, and I'm American and even I've, I've gotten that <laughs> stuck, stuck into my I soul. In the last years. Yeah, but, <laughs> but at the same time, yeah, I, I ultimately, I, I would prefer not to care about the manager uh, that much or to have to think about the manager that much in the same way that I don't want to have to think about the goalkeeper too much. I, I would, if Everton are winning, I think a lot of people will be fine with, with, with just kind of admitting that, Hey, we needed some kind of wild curveball change that no one would have expected. And, and I think that they would go along with it. I think the obviously the, the question a lot of people have is, is what happens to your point when we go two goals down or mm-hmm. at home or, or we, we lose a few on the bounce, but it, it'll certainly be interesting. And, and, and I do certainly get the impression already. Um, and I'm, and I'm sure the club has gone a long way to try to give this impression that he's, he's an incredibly hands-on mm. coach. And I use the word coach very intentionally because the, the manager role uh, sometimes uh, can be a little bit cloudy in that regard. But, but um, obviously I, I want him to succeed because um, I, I want Everton to succeed. So yeah, no, totally makes I mean, sense. He's always, he's always been the same <clears throat> when he was at Liverpool, he was very hands-on. Yeah. Um, and again, there was this, a very tough love element that he had, uh, you know, even players like, you know, as great as he, he was, Steven Gerrard and Jamie Carragher when he was at Liverpool. Um, <clears throat> he was not a man to throw praise around to them. And that's what it depends on the character of the player. There are certain players who, and Gerrard is one of them who, you know, he always had great confidence and ability, but he, they wanted that approval from him, approval mm-hmm. that he didn't readily give because he's just not that type. Um, and it'd be very interesting to see how he deals with some of the players at Everton who have been found wanting when they've needed to dig deep in the last few seasons. Mm-hmm. Does he encourage them um, to try and bring out of them something that we haven't seen so far? Or does he still employ this, this sort of tough love approach where he's on them all the time? He's, you know, as Damari Gray said, he's constantly pointing out what you're doing wrong rather than telling you what you're good at. Right. Um, but I mean, he, you know, like everybody else, I'm sure he's probably learned over the years different methods. But certainly, he is a very, very hands-on uh, coach, and it will be interesting because it's a different approach to Carlo. Um, Carlo was a little bit more hands-off; he let his staff do the, the coaching, and he would observe. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you very rarely saw shots of Carlo on the training ground, dragging people into position, laying mm-hmm. the law down to them, and. And, and stuff like that. I mean, he was usually on the touchline. And that was one of the things people wondered about, wasn't it, with Carlo, whether he would be able to do the job at Everton that he'd done elsewhere because he was regarded as a facilitator of very good and great players rather than somebody who built from the bottom up. Um, and so there was this sort of strange, it was a very mixed, incredibly mixed season, wasn't it, last season, the away results and the home results. And I was watching the other day when um, some footage from Florida and Alan was about to take a throw in and the whistle went and Benitez appeared by his side and he was having a go at people not moving when he was ready to take a throw in. And you know, when he threw the ball back to Alan, it was very much, you know, I'll use the phrase hacked off <laughs> manager as he threw the, he, you know, he literally launched the ball back at Alan. And yeah. I, I think that's where the difference is. He is a te- you know, this phrase you always used to use at Liverpool, which the players always then started using themselves which was small details, small details. Mm. And that's what, that's what he's about, really. And it'd be very interesting to see whether these players benefit more from that hands-on micromanagement approach that he will give them rather than Carlo's... I mean, obviously, Carlo Ancelotti is incredibly wise tactically. You know, sure. two or three games last season where he did pull off some great tactical masterstrokes, if you like. But he, was, he is not the micromanager that Benitez is. And it'd be very interesting to see whether those contrasting how those contrasting approaches work with a group of players who, for once in a better word, over the last few seasons have been weak. Yeah. Um, when, when, when the chips have been down on lots of occasions, they've been weak. So will, will having a strong manager who, whose natural instinct is not to throw an arm around them, but to tell them where they've been going wrong, how will that work? It, again, that's another one of the subplots to, to what we will, we will see at Goodison. Well, I think there's been a long-term suspicion that this group of players 
while having some nice individual talents have for whatever reason been lesser than the sum of their parts. So yes, I, I think that, that Rafa, uh, I think that'll really be his challenge. I, I think it's the challenge that we seem seemingly ask every new manager that comes in is to is to find the, the key to unlocking a, a more cohesive, productive, uh, consistent level of performance from from this group. Um, I you mentioned before you referenced before uh, when when Rafa was being um, you know interviewed this sort of shadowy figure of, of Uzmanov in the background and, and and it made me think a little bit of <clears throat> how. In some ways, Everton, you know exactly what Everton is and, and, and what they stand for. I, I've said so many times that as a club, Everton are overwhelmingly a force for good, uh, especially in the community. Um, I, I can't imagine a club that, that seems to be at the forefront of, 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 of social uh, action and, and, and betterment of the community and taking care of, of the people around them quite, quite like Everton is. And I'm sure that I'm, I'm biased to a degree, but uh, from, from an American standpoint, I, I certainly don't see it. Uh, see that same level of engagement in, in the in the professional teams here, but I think that one of the if there's been a big criticism of Everton, it's the at times it's been the other than the performances. Obviously, it's been sort of a lack of transparency, and and I think that when I say transparency, I don't mean that they should tell us everything that's going on all the time, but even in things like trying to years later fully understand what the actual job description remit powers whatever you want to call them are of the director of football marcel brands mm-hmm. I, I i'm curious uh, I, i've i've wanted to ask i've wanted to ask you this but i i certainly will ask anyone this who who may have a, a perspective on this you know, we're a few years now into Marcel Brands being the director of football. Um, he signed a new contract. Um, and yet he is this, he kind of represents this almost enigmatic figure from the standpoint that no one knows exactly what power he has or doesn't have. And therefore, he is easy to either blame or praise for things <laughs> yeah. in, a, in a way that you can't always nail down. I, I think that I've made the argument before that that this is intentional by Everton because every day that they don't clarify what role Marcel Brands has in staffing decisions around the manager, player acquisition, et cetera, um, you know, we, we, there's always been the, well, is this a Brands player? Is this a, 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 a you know, a Carlo player? Is this a, you know, any of those types of things. My question to you, Phil, is you've, you've, co- you've obviously covered the sport for a long time and you've seen a variety of different administrative setups at, at all of these different clubs. What do you make of Marcel Brands? Because on the one hand, I, I I tend to like him and think based on his history, he's got good ideas and, and a good philosophy. But if I don't know what power he actually has, I don't have an easy way of actually evaluating the outcomes of the incoming players that, quote, he chose or didn't choose and the, the overall performance at the club. What, what do you make of Marcel Brands and Everton's kind of intentional ambiguity around his role? Well, I think just be- before we go on to Marcel Brands, I think if you go back to the start of Farhad Mishiri's time at the club, one of the biggest mistakes he made was putting together the Kuman and Walsh partnership. Um, because Kuman arrived first as the manager, incredibly strong character, no nonsense. And then he appointed Steve Walsh because he'd had this success signing players at, at Leicester City. But he wasn't a director of football at Leicester City. He wasn't in charge of the strategy of the whole club, if you like. He was a, he was a chief scout at Leicester City, and that's where he picked up these players like Kante and Mares, etc. Um, that never worked. Um, my my view is that the club sort of outlined what they expected from Marcel Brands when they put him on the board of directors. He was in charge of overall strategy of the football club. Now, since then, I I mean I'm in many ways, almost as confused as you, because I my sort of view of Marcel Brand's role as the director of football would be on things like, say, the manager, the choice of manager. This season, when they all woke up one morning and Carlo Ancelotti said to them, right, I'm, I'm going off to Real Madrid, thanks for everything, I'm going. Um, my view would be that Marcel Brands would then be tasked with drawing up a list of managers who could succeed Ancelotti, 
recommending one to the the owner and and the board of directors <coughs> really the owner when you say that uh, not the board of directors uh, and presumably if they have faith in him they will say okay marcel you go and get him um i don't know exactly what happened and he may well have said to them i think the best person for the job is rafael benitez um but it, i find it i just find it slightly hard to understand that maybe benitez would have been a marcel brand's appointment um any more than perhaps carlo ancelotti might have been a marcel brand's appointment right. i could be totally wrong saying that right. um for all i know he could have wandered into to Mashiri and said, look, we need Mark, we need Rafael Benitez here more than anybody else. But my sort of, in my head, if you like, my feeling would be that Marcel Brands might say we need a young manager, like a Graham Potter figure, that type, uh, whether it be a Potter or someone from abroad who is like Potter. I will provide him with the players. He makes them work, gel, etc. My, not, my sort of experience of Rafael Benitez as a manager at Liverpool, Newcastle, etc., is that I don't see him being presented with players unless they are cast iron guarantees. If, if Marcel rung him up and said, look, I can get hold of Romelu Lukaku here, he's hardly likely to say no. But further down the line of players that ever can afford, I find it hard to imagine Benitez just being presented with players left, right and centre. Um, so I'm not, I'm not quite sure myself anymore, really, what Marcel Brand's role is. Mm. Um, he's meant to be director of football in charge of the overall strategy of the club. Um, Benitez is an incredibly strong character who will want to do things his way. Um, they may well strike up a good partnership um, and work well together. I mean, sort of, if you look at how they signed players last summer, um, I can see um, Alan and... James being Carlo Ancelotti signings. I can see Ben Godfrey and maybe Decore <laughs> being Marcel Brand's signings. Right. Um, whether that was because whether that was on the basis of you have him, I'll have him type of thing, or maybe it was a, a strategy between the two. And to be fair, those players all made good contributions at some point or another. So maybe the pair will work well together. I don't know. But if you ask me now to say, you know, write down exactly what Marcel Brand's role is at Everton now, I wouldn't know. And at the moment, I would say his role is to clear away some of the dead wood that is piled around at such a high that you could almost imagine Goodison Park being declared a fire hazard. There's so much <laughs> of it there. Yeah. Um, so to me, that would be, if you said that, what's his job now? I would say that's it. Whether that yeah. was the job he had in mind when he arrived, I don't know. But he needs now as the director of football to start getting shot of some of those players who are taking up space, taking up wages, uh, taking up places in the squad that will then allow Everton to make more signings. But no, it's 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 certainly it's certainly an interesting. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the partnership works. Certainly. Yeah, I, I think the only follow up I have that Phil, and this is really just asking you as as a an experienced journalist and and obviously understanding that some of the dynamics between how the media communicate and interact with clubs in England are certainly different from the kind of media to sporting organization experience that I, I probably grew up with and was exposed to here in America. But I, I, I wonder when I, when I ask you what the role is and, and you are also like, like many uh, Everton supporters kind of not totally sure. And there's still that ambiguity there. I think a lot of people, a lot of people have asked me in the past or have, have kind of wondered aloud, does Everton get questioned about these types of things in terms of being asked to clarify the roles or the remits of someone like Marcel Brands? Is, is that a question that gets asked? Who do you ask it to? Is, do you understand? I mean, I, I think that there's, I think that that is sometimes the confusion is that there feels not, not only like there's ambiguity, but that that maybe the questions aren't even being asked. No, no, I, I think, I mean, who the journalists ask the questions to, I don't know. They maybe wouldn't do it publicly. But, I mean, there's lots of, in my opinion, nonsense talked about local journalists on Merseyside and that they are, you know, they're apologists. They don't pose the questions. Things <laughs> it's, it's, it's okay at Liverpool because things are going great at Liverpool. There's no, you know... sure. No particular questions you need to ask there, but 
I know, I, I've known and worked with these people for many, many years. People like Dominic King on the Daily Mail, Paul mm -hmm. Joyce on the Times, Chris Bascom, Andy Hunter, those national journalists based on Merseyside. They will be asking the questions. Make no mistake about that. Okay. Um, sometimes people might not like the answers they get, but they will be asking the questions because the, these are experienced, reputable journalists. They're not apologists for the club. Um, they're happy to report good news from the club, but they'll also make the right noises and ask the right questions. I mean, these are very experienced journalists. They won't just sit there and think, well, oh, wonder what's going on there and not ask anyone about it. Yeah. Um, I just think the situation that seemed to me, looking from the outside in with Marcel Brands at the moment, is quite vague, isn't it? You know, nobody seems quite to nail down now, right. other than maybe him getting rid of lots of players if he can. And he's not he's not done it with huge success so far this summer um, to try and make way for others. Now, whether that's whether there are other things he does behind the scenes, we've seen him congratulating Seamus Coleman on his new contract. We've seen him ushering Richarlison towards cheering teammates after he came back from the Olympics. Yeah. Um, you know, his his job really now is is to try to try and make room in that squad for manoeuvre uh, so that things are better when the transfer window closes. Well, speaking of players that are ostensibly on their way out the door, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, ask you about your thoughts on Hamas Rodriguez. Um, I think that's that's an interesting disconnect because I think from just I think from a pure, you know, we talked before about the, you know, I think you referenced that that uh, visual from the Athletic that had Everton's fan base essentially being the most pessimistic <laughs> about the season, and 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 maybe there is to, for a lot of us maybe more of a just kind of a resignation that hey, you know, we're probably going to be mid table this season, but it, let's just hopefully be entertained and and you know have good experiences at Goodison. I think there's definitely a segment of, of supporters who didn't get to see Hamas Rodriguez play last season, who now feel like now feel like Rafa is is kind of exiling him into training on his own. Um, I, I, I imagine that it's it's not quite as sinister as all that. Maybe it has more to do with the logistics of trying to protect a player who you're trying to move on. Um, maybe feeling like you need to separate him from the squad. I, what, what, what do you make of, of Hamas reportedly being asked to train apart from the rest of the squad? Do, do you view it as just a means of expediting his exit? Or it, obviously the, the documented relationship between Hamas Rodriguez and Rafa Benitez has not exactly been one of, of mutual affection, to say the least. So what, what do you make of that? Well, I think, has he said, I think he said this lunchtime that he's self-isolating. Hamas is self-isolating. Ah, oh um, yeah, we've been in, we've been on this call, so I've not seen that yeah, news. So I think I think he said he's self-isolating, so that explains maybe tomorrow. Um, okay. In in the wider context, um, I cannot imagine Hamas Rodriguez is a Rafa Benitez type of player. He right. wants total discipline, fitness, whatever. But equally, I also understand the other side of the argument. If you look at Everton. You know, they sometimes need someone with that X factor, which he undoubtedly has. You saw it last season, moments of, of quality that his colleagues could not even dream of you know, sometimes. Um, but there is another side to it. I think he disappeared for the last few months of last season. I think he had, you know, there were times when um, he didn't, you know, he just didn't get involved in games. Um, I'm not sure the image of him thumbs up on the luxury jet before the, uh, I'm not saying to me that was his fault, but it may be advised for him to be allowed to leave before the final game of the season and then post a picture of him smiling on his on the private jet as he headed off to yeah. over America. I'm not, I mean, I'm not particularly pointing the finger at him, but it's just possibly it would, it would, would have been better had he not done that. Um, uh, I thought he produced some fantastic moments last season. If he was fit and available, I would, may, I would certainly have him in and around the squad. Um, but Benitez has made a decision, hasn't he? He's, you know, he's maybe he's just not his type of player. Mm -hmm. um, he didn't contribute a huge amount in the second half of last season. Either, you know, he suffered a lot with injury as he has done throughout the latter part of his career. Um, and it is one of those. That, I think there is that frustration that the Everton fans never saw him. Yeah, uh, in the flesh, did they? That's the problem. They watch these great moments on television, thinking, "Oh, can't wait till next season when we see that." You know, and then of course. There's every chance he could be hoiked out the door before they even get the chance to see him. I, I think it will become more of an issue if they watch the team and the team's a little bit 
not easy on the eye, should we say, and they're, they're struggling. I think then people will, will question what's going on. I think Everton supporters, long before your time, Rob, will remember uh, a player called Duncan McKenzie, who signed for Everton one minute. The manager who signed him called Billy Bingham was sacked. The manager who came in was called Gordon Lee, who had form for picking the star player and then selling him. He did it in Newcastle with Malcolm McDonald. And Mackenzie became such a core celebrity among the fans that when Lee finally sold him and he came back playing with Chelsea, scored against Everton for Chelsea and Goodison Park rose in acclamation for him. <laughs> um, I'm not <laughs> suggesting Hammers Rodriguez is, is but, but there is, there is sometimes managers just don't like certain types of players and, and that's yeah. the end of it. Yeah. Um, but when you make those decisions, I mean, just to finish off that story, Gordon Lee replaced the um, Duncan McKenzie with a guy called Mickey Walsh. He was, you know, sadly for him, lovely lad and all that, couldn't have barn door from three paces and they ended up having to sell him. So that was a decision that didn't go well. I think Everton potentially have um, a very potent attack. Um, yeah. but they've got uh, Richarlison back and ready. Calvert-Lewin apparently is available. And then you have this whiff that he's clearly deliberately added, like Samandros Townsend and uh, Damari Gray. Where would James Rodriguez fit into that? Would right. Rodriguez playing on that side expose James Coleman as it did on occasions last season? You'd be thinking about all of these things. And in the end, the manager makes that decision. And then, um, to use a very overdramatic phrase, he lives and dies by making that decision. Um, yeah. But I think he can say about Rafael Benitez, he will not shy away from it. And he will not be thinking, well, the fans won't like me if I do that. He'll just do it. Right. Uh, and then we'll see what happens. But very talented player, but you know, you could see what, why a manager who thrives on discipline, organisation, fitness, drilling, compact side, might look at Hamez and think, maybe not for me. But on the other hand, you've got that. He could be the guy who produces something in the 89th minute that earns you a point or maybe three. So, yeah, interesting to see how that pans out. But I do not see a long term future for James Rodriguez if they can get him out of the door. Yeah, I'd be inclined to agree. It's 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 unfortunate on some level, just from a certainly from a, an entertainment value perspective. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I also, I I, but but the, you know what? We, if you win one nil, that's way more entertaining than than any wins or wins. And I think exactly. that Everton would settle for that. And I and obviously. Look, you know, when the manager comes, when a new manager comes in, uh, they, regardless of, of your feelings, uh, they've got to be kind of supported in, in the overall uh, philosophy that they have uh, about player selection and those sorts of things, at least, at least until about three weeks in when we're all completely complaining about it. So, um, <laughs> Phil, I want to end with the, in the uh, end our time with uh, a non-football question uh, to wrap things up today. Um, really appreciate the time. I, okay. I have had... Um, I've seen a lot over the last few days um, about the 25th anniversary of Oasis's performance at Nebworth. Um, <laughs> I am I am uh, excited. I, I don't know if you know this, but I, I host an 80s, 90s and 2000s music show here in Oklahoma City, uh, which I don't there's no reason you would ever hear it since it's on at 4 a.m. Sunday your time. But uh, I am I am someone who obviously has a lot of affection for that time period and, and mm. live concerts and live music. Um, it's not really a question about Oasis, but this is really a question of, to you. Yeah. Um, in all the years, obviously, uh, you grew up in England and what I can generally class and consider to be just an absolutely revolutionary, exciting time uh, in music. Uh, I wanted to know, was there ever a concert that you attended growing up uh, that, that really kind of stands out above the rest? Oh, that's a great question, that. Um, ooh. Let me think. Well, I've seen. Um, it can be more than one if you've got. It's yeah, okay. I've got, I put I've you on the spot few, here. <laughs> I've got a few. I can. Um, I'm a huge fan uh, of Paul Rogers, who sings oh, the yeah. and Bad Company. I, Bad Company hadn't toured England for years and years, and I saw them in the late '70s, the Liverpool Empire. I always remember that. Um, a band who I've seen on countless occasions, and the last time I saw them was at the O2 in 2009 who were absolutely fantastic with ACDC. Brilliant, oh, brilliant wow. concert. Yeah. Uh, but two of two of the most spectacular I've seen in, in, in sort of recent times uh, were Roger Waters. I saw mm. him doing um, a Dark Side of the Moon tour uh, in Liverpool where he did Dark Side of the Moon its entirety 
in the second half of the show. And the first half of the show was a selection of great uh, hits. Well, not hits. I hate I think Floyd would be in single <laughs> hits pieces. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the funny thing was about that was the, the final, in, in a very spectacular intro, the final little bit before he came on was a giant hand tuning the radio. And when the radio was tuned, it was Kenneth Wilson Holmes commentary, 1966 World Cup final. They think it's all over. It is now. And then the concert started. Was, mm, not sure why, but that's how it did. And then the other one, I saw him in Manchester doing the wall. Uh, and that oh, was wow. just unbelievable. That He didn't do anything other than the wall. He just played the whole first to last in order. Uh, and that was absolutely fantastic. But seen some great, great, great gigs over many years. Suffered in the rain at Castle Donington at Monsters of Rock a couple of times. Um, but if I was picking them out, ACDC always fantastic. Uh, Roger mm. Waters, brilliant. And um, I would happily turn up to hear Paul Rogers sing the telephone directory. If he, want, if he ever does a <laughs> telephone directory tour, I will be there. <laughs> very nice very nice those are incredible shows and uh the the wall and and dark side of the moon are in my overly large record collection at this point that my wife is probably starting to get annoyed at over all these years so no <laughs> incredible incredible choices yeah. phil i'm definitely gonna harass you until i get you back on to just talk uh music at some point uh just because that's that's uh that's the other nerdy if you can side stick to that that, that rock prog rock sort of thing i'll be i'll oh. happily do it Oh sure yeah, I can and obviously, I, obviously, I, Oasis. I've got no problem with that. Either. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, it, it was more. It was more just the fact that it, it blows my mind that we're selling that it's twenty five years since mm. a Oasis at their peak show. And and again, I, I grew up here, and and I had other bands besides Oasis that I that I enjoyed, obviously. But nostalgia for live music, especially coming out of COVID, and especially as we're talking mm. about going into a stadiums full of fans again, just gets me excited about community again. I. Suppose. Yeah, I've also I should I should add that I've also had the pleasure of seeing Bruce Springsteen on oh, a few occasions, wow. Hyde Park. I saw him at the Emirates. I think it was the first ever rock gig they've done at the Emirates. I'm not sure they've done that many there since, actually. Yeah. Um, but uh, the usual sort of thing, he played for three and a half hours and the first guy to physically drag him off, you know, to um, but uh, no, all all good stuff. The boss's energy is just absolutely superhuman, uh, given yeah. given how many years he's been doing this. Um, yeah, my my top few are, are I saw I had the opportunity to see Prince live, which is probably my number one. Uh, you know, maybe co number one with seeing Radiohead in Dallas back in two thousand eight. That was incredible. But no, great great selections, Phil. Phil, really appreciate the time. Uh, thanks for talking uh, the Premier League and, and Everton headed into the season. Um, we should, we will have this. Uh, uh, we're going to get this pot up pretty soon. But obviously, I've already begun. I've already missed the opening Rafa press conference. So I'm going to need to go back and gotcha. track back and see all the players that are missing through COVID. My thanks to Phil McNulty uh, again. I'm Rob Vera. We'll be back with more kickabout next week, and of course, uh, we will have post match on the Blue Room uh, tomorrow, as well as all the usual shows. Uh, my thanks to Phil. I'll see you guys again next week. With the new Chevy Silverado, you might be driving in this, but with the Silverado's redesigned interior and large infotainment screens, it'll feel more like this. Introducing the new 2022 Chevy Silverado. Find new upgrades. Find new roads. Chevrolet. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.